1: Welcome to The Swirl Suite, everybody. On this short bonus episode, Tanisha and I, we received an advanced viewing of this documentary called Sparkling, The Story of Champagne. So it was directed by Frank Mannion, and we got to talk to him today. We don't give too, too many spoilers, and you actually might know some of this information already, but it's a really interesting conversation, and I look forward to hearing what you think of the movie that airs on Friday. Cheers.
0: Yes, um, well, I'm Frank Mannion and I'm the director of the feature documentary Sparkling the Story of Champagne. I'm from Ireland originally, but I've been living in, in England uh, for over 20 years, basically since I, I left college. So I'm, I'm an outsider, which is sort of the perspective that this film has. You know, it's an outsider's look at the, at the wonderful world of champagne and also the equally surprising world of English sparkling wine.
2: And I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to be one of my next questions of what is your relationship to uh, champagne or wine in general? But as you said, it's you're probably just a lover and um, consumer, connoisseur of it. And that's why you decided you wanted to get into this
0: well that's a yes that that, that's exactly right um you know i i would you know say that i'm an amateur wine and champagne enthusiast uh but i'm primarily a filmmaker and as a filmmaker you know always on the lookout for a really good story whether that's from the taxi driver who tells you a, a funny story to you know reading a book or a short story so you know as a as a filmmaker, um, I run a company called Swipe Films, uh, which is a, a production and distribution company. And over the years, we have released a lot of French movies in the UK and Ireland. So you know, I guess I could consider myself a bit of a Francophile. So through you know working with a lot of French um, filmmakers and actors and directors, and French campaigns. Um, you know, I I sort of investigated, you know, any interesting French subjects. And the first that sprung to mind was, was, was the world of Champagne and wondering whether we could take a look at the Champagne world through a journey of discovery of whether Dom Perignon was really the father of Champagne.
2: Okay, so what made Champagne jump out to you as opposed to some of the other French wine regions?
0: Well, I mean in some ways you know champagne is the you know part of the fabric of life you know, pre, you know predominantly for celebration or for events for premieres for you know the end of filming of a new film so you know champagne is almost ever present globally in some ways so what I began to notice know at events in particular so for instance at the Cannes Film Festival it's sponsored by Piper Heitzig and Piper Heitzig is clearly not a French name it's not French sounding in any shape or form it's Germanic of course and then if you sort of play that in your mind you see you know Moet, Bollinger, Tattinger, um, Roderer, Piper Heitzig these are not French names, so clearly it's a region with outside influence. So it was really sort of the thought bubble that goes in to having a glass of champagne, on realizing that no, what you're drinking is quintessentially French, but it may have an exciting history to unearth. And that's what you know a filmmaker does is to try and go behind the curtain and find something interesting, uh, you know, behind to, to look at. And really that's what's sparking the story of Champagne is. It's the, the journey through the Champagne region, uh, talking to all the major Champagne houses and asking them you know, about their business, asking them who did they think um, invented Champagne or discovered Champagne. And was it Dom Perignon? Was it someone else? Was it an accident? Um, and, and really just going through the rich history of, of an incredibly beautiful region.
1: Hi, Frank. I'm Sarita. I'm Tanisha's colleague.
0: Oh, hi, Sarita. Yeah.
1: Uh, I have a question. There is a mention of the women of the Champagne houses who took over the houses when their spouses passed away. Would you do a feature on just the women of Champagne? Because that would be really interesting.
0: Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, with the format that we chose for this film, it was a 90-minute feature documentary. But we have enough material for three to six you know, um, episodes of of a, of a TV series. And one of the subjects would certainly be the incredible female entrepreneurs over the last 200 years. And that's present day with, with the likes of Vitaly Tattinger, who's the uh, president of of Tattinger. I mean, I'm calling calling it Tattinger, but it clearly it should be Tétanger, but um, but you know, visually, Tattinger is, is an incredible entrepreneur. Vove, as you know, means widow. So, you know, once she was widowed in in the in the late uh, uh, you know 19th century she really got involved in, in the business came up with some incredible innovations such as riddling that are you know still used in the champagne uh, making process to this day she was the first to come up with a rose vintage champagne she was brilliant at marketing she came up with the wine of the comet you know which was the 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 vintage of the year that um, Halley's Comet or Haley's Comet passed through you know France um, or, or at least the champagne region with a with a great brand vision also widowed, you know, who came up with that incredible aphorism about, you know, I only drink champagne, you know, on two occasions, when I'm thirsty and when I'm not, you know, there's a, it it goes on beyond that. But, you know, she was a brilliant brand ambassador and very well respected in the champagne region. And then you have the likes of Odette Paul Roger, who built a long-term, a lasting friendship with Winston Churchill, who to this day, you know, casts a long shadow over Paul Roger. There's a Winston Churchill Cuvée that is launched in the best uh, vintage years of of, of, of Paul Roger. Um, uh, he's clearly one of Paul Roger's greatest customers. He drank over 40,000 bottles of champagne of Paul Roger in his lifetime. He lived to be 90, so it's a good tribute to, if you drink champagne, you can have a good life like uh, Winston Churchill, you know, did. So really, Um, in the film we 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 focus on those entrepreneurs but there are so many others you know living and dead it's really a source of inspiration and you know considering how I would say that the wine industry could be considered as a very male dominated one in the champagne world it doesn't seem to be the case
1: but yes I'd
0: love to make a I'd love to make a a film about the the female, you know, entrepreneurs, and you know, our, our producer, Aksana Popkova, who's a Russian originally, was very keen on, uh, you know, us, you know, making sure that we acknowledge the great contributions of female entrepreneurs over the last two hundred years.
2: Yeah, I think that would be fascinating, taking it from um, a historical point of view, like how you mentioned. Um, with Ficot, and then if we talk about Madame Pomarie, and you know, bringing it forward to um, uh, Vitalita Tangier and some of the other women that are doing things today, um, and even Odette Paul Roger. Hearing about her in the documentary was uh, one of the most interesting and fascinating things to me, and something that you know I kept with me, because I had not heard much about her before. I've heard of Paul Roger and the connection of Winston Churchill because I know at the British Embassy here, they talk about um, Paul Roger a lot and I think that's their house champagne and that's what they use um, and pour exclusively there. So hearing her story was uh, very fascinating to me. But I wanna ask you a question about that, Um, not necessarily Odette, but with that being one of the things that stuck out to me as uh, fascinating and uh, an interesting fact or person that I didn't know before, there was a lot of history and key facts and things in the movie, what was like the most interesting thing or most fascinating thing that you learned as a result of filming this?
0: Well, well, I mean, I, I guess there was a lot of surprises, you know, discovering that champagne was originally a red and still wine, you know, that it wasn't fizzy, that the effervescence was seen as a fault for decades, if if not centuries. That was a, you know, that was a very big surprise. The other big surprise is, is the fact that you know, the English, you know, can make an argument that they were in some ways responsible for discovering sparkling champagne. And, you know, we, we, in the film, we look at two pieces of, of documentation that, that lend credence to that argument. The first is um, uh, a 16th century uh, treatise or, or paper in the Royal Society in Pall Mall in London where a scientist called Doctor Christopher Merritt describes the method champagne was without actually using, you know, the the term method champagne was, as to how Gloucester cider makers were using that process to make wine fizzy. Now that predates uh, Dom Perignon by, you know, several years. And then there's a 1676 Restoration comedy, a play by Sir George Etheridge called. The Man of Mode. And that um, describes aristocrats drinking sparkling champagne on the mall in England. A character called Sir Fopling Flutter plays uh, that role. And in real life, we got Stephen Fry, you know, who's a very well-known actor and and polymath in the UK. He uh, agreed to play the role of Sir Fopling Flutter because he likes a bit of... uh, mischievous thought on the fact that perhaps the English got there before Dom Perignon. So so that was a surprise to see that there was some credible evidence to suggest that the English uh, got to sparkling champagne before uh, the so-called father of champagne, Dom Perignon. Um, So yeah, there there were pleasant surprises, you know, like that, you know, around uh, the filming of of, uh, the documentary.
2: Now, when you showed it to the French, what did they think about that part of the English being the first to discover um, or create champagne per se? What, what did they say?
0: Well, well, firstly, they were all pretty much aware of, of Christopher Merritt and the 17th century uh, document from 1662. So it wasn't a surprise to them but i think their their approach to it was it really doesn't matter who discovered champagne or or marketed it you know to become the the fashionable drink that it is today and has been over the last 200 years it really sort of is immaterial to them it's not they 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 in in the film jean baptiste lecaillon of uh, louis roderer yeah the Cristal winemaker says look champagne doesn't belong to the Champ- Champenois, it belongs to the world. Or a, a region which has been overrun over you know, centuries by the Goths, by the Huns, by the by the Franks, by the by the Russians. You know, it's been invaded by every major force that you can think of. So of course it's going to pick up outside influences. And in fact, it was the, you know, the Germans and Prussians and, and the Alsatians. Who were responsible for seeing the potential in Champagne and marketing it. And that's why you have those big names to this day, Krug, you know, Roderer, Piper Heitzig. They were outsiders, entrepreneurs who came to the Champagne region, saw the potential, married, uh, you know, local, um, uh, local ladies and, and helped create this myth factory that is such a, a cause of, of joy and celebration all around the world today, so really it wasn 't a, a major you know uh, issue with them in fact, in uh, France, Canal plus, the big uh, French broadcaster, have acquired the rights to the film and will be showing it you know later this year so they clearly enjoy the sense of mischief that perhaps there is this sense of the English, uh, you know, have, a, have have some form of a claim to the discovery of sparkling champagne. So clearly they expect that, uh, you know, the French audience would be there to see a film on this subject. But in the film, we leave it up to the audience to decide, you know, what they want to believe or whose side they want to take. Okay. We couldn't find any American evidence that uh, the Americans got there first.
2: Oh, our country wasn't even in existence yeah. when they were Fighting this out. So no, it wasn't right. us. <laughs> I That's had a right. question That's about
1: right. the um the marketing. I love the way that you captured how the champagne is marketed with um how it used to be marketed, how it's using events now, um, the most popular bottle seen on Instagram. Um, Jay-Z was involved. So we'll talk a little bit about the role of marketing in champagne.
0: Well, yeah, the, the Jay-Z's, Armand, Armand de Brignac is, is, a, is a very example of that. Um, you know, Jean-Jacques Catier, who we interviewed in the film, is, is the founder of Armand de Brignac. And he came up with that name because it was the favorite uh, character in the in, in in a novel that his mother loved. So as a tribute to his mother, he called the champagne Armand de Brignac. and And that in itself is just a, a, a lovely story, just showing how champagne houses really are family businesses. So one of the greatest strokes of genius or good fortune is the fact that not, he didn't just stop at, at, at the name of Armand de the, the, the Brignac. He came up with an unbelievable uh, design for the bottle which, as he described, is like a UFO in the landscape of champagne, and I think many other champagne houses thought, you know, Jean-Jacques Cattier has lost his mind, you know, that he's created this, you know, champagne in an outrageously blingy, you know, bottle, but in fact, it was the greatest marketing stroke of genius I think, of the late 20th century in the champagne world because it, it got the attract, it got the attention of Jay-Z. He was filming um, a video in uh, Monaco and uh, the production team asked for a case of champagne to be sent to the film set in Monaco. Uh, Jean-Jacques Cartier invoiced, as it would any ordering a, a case of champagne and, and a bit like that uh, Victor Kayam ad. I don't know if you remember that ad from the 80s. He, he he had Remington shavers and the ad was, I love the shaver so much I bought the company. So it's a bit like Jay-Z loved the product so much, um, having sampled it in the video, that he bought the company um, or at least became partners with Jean-Jacques Cartier um, in fact, uh, you know, to sort of seal the deal, Jay-Z and and, and uh, Beyoncé flew in by private jet and went straight to Chiny les roses the little pretty village where Armand de Brignac and Catier is based. They had a barbecue, got on well, sampled the stuff, watched the, went down to the cellars, and then Jay-Z flew off uh, back to Manchester where he had a concert uh, that night, you know, so it's a it's a lovely story and and jay z has a very very respectful relationship with jean jacques cattier and the cattier family and um, and you know they he really respects the traditions and uh i think as you know uh, earlier this year jay-z you know sold i think uh either a forty nine percent stake or fifty percent stake in the company to l v m h so it's now part of the l v m h uh family. But Jean-Jacques Catier is still heavily involved in the business. So that's just one example of marketing. I mean, the other way Champagne houses market themselves is through celebrity association. So you have the likes of Moet et Chandon, who have Roger Federer, the sort of, you know, squeaky clean uh, uh, sportsman image, um, you know, legend in, in the tennis world. They previously had a bit more risque, uh, a celebrity association with Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson was their face for 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 several years, and and in the marketing for that, you know, they made her very Marilyn Monroe esque, you know. So, which probably didn't go down too great with Piper Heitzig, who have their own Marilyn Monroe, um, you know, association. It was Marilyn Monroe's uh, favorite champagne. Uh, there, you know, we came across orders of, of Piper Heidsick, uh, uh to be delivered to her bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Um, you know, so each sort of champagne house finds either some kind of, you know, celebrity um, endorsement. In the, in the case of, uh, you know, Tattinger, they sponsor the Screen Actor Guild Awards and also the the BAFTAs, the British um, Academy Awards in, in London. And again, you know, it's a, it's a great way to showcase their brand. Piper Heitzig or, or Rare, their, their, their Rare Champagne is the official uh, drink of, or the official champagne of the Oscars. So, you know, they all have their own unique way of marketing themselves. I think in the champagne world, what we sort of felt was that the one that was most admired as the most cost-effective uh, celebrity brand marketing is Paul Roger and Winston Churchill. You know, Winston Churchill obviously has been dead for over 50 years, but he's still very part of the part of the marketing story of Paul Roger, and it costs nothing to market the brand with that association.
2: I think it's fascinating how they do that um, and how champagne has always been seen as a luxury thing. And so even the marketing now, like it continues with that, but champagne has always been seen as this, uh, this thing. I like the celebrity connections that are made, the celebrity endorsements, whether they are sought out or happens organically, that they drink this, and also that they sponsor a lot of events. I think that's a really great way to market. Like I know, Veuve Clicquot does um, the polo, and like you said, Tattinger does the um, BAFTAs, and then they do another award show. I think in there they mentioned Wimbledon in there and I don't remember which um, I think that was Lanson that they do uh, Wimbledon. And so having these uh, brands market themselves as part of an event or they partner as part of this event that puts them that keeps them on this high, high luxury kind of thing, because people always look at champagne, like you mentioned, they look at it for a party, a celebration for their best. If they want to do something fancy, oh, I have champagne! So now this, you know, sets the event up a little bit, and it is they have done an amazing job of marketing it that way from beginning until now.
0: Well, I, I think that's right, and you know, the really interesting thing about this um, is that the, the the brand message of champagne has been consistent for over fifteen hundred years, and the reason for that is that champagne was the uh, drink of the coronation of French kings in Reims Cathedral. So going back to the 5th century when Clovis was crowned king, um, champagne, the local drink, was served at his coronation and have, was served at the coronation of every other subsequent French king. And so if we look at today, the one thing that any consumer in the world would associate champagne with is celebration. So it is the most consistent brand messaging of any product that I can think of ever in the world, in this case, going over 1,500 years. That and also,
2: they they all have the same message too. It's not just this brand is marketing it this way, another brand is marketing another way. Champagne as a region, they're all, it seems that they're all on the same page
0: yes I, I think that's right, and the other really you know wonderful thing that we saw when we were filming in Epernay and Reims is how collegiate and collaborative the champagne houses are obviously there's a big trade you know organization that they are all you know part of that gives them one strong voice. The most recent example of that is when uh, you know Putin you know decreed that only Russian sparkling wine could be described as champagne in, in, in Russia and that you know cham- the real champagne has to be described as sparkling wine in, in Russia. You know, the champagne region reacted with one voice um on that, you know, through the the, the trade organization. In in America as well, you know, when you have these grandfather laws with um you know American champagne producers in LA and or in sorry in California. And New York in particular, the Champagne lobby is really one voice, and and that happens at a sort of global level, but also in a in in sort of a local county level. The greatest example of that being Paul Roger in 1900, where their cellar collapsed, where I think three million bottles were destroyed, totally obliterating the business of Paul Roger. But the other Champagne houses, rather than cracking open the Champagne to celebrate. The sort of death of a rival, instead, um, helped to put Paul Roger back in business, back on his feet. And over 121 years after that seller collapse, it's uh, in such fine fettle as a business. And really, that wouldn't have happened without uh, Paul Roger's contemporaries in 1900, really, um, you know, making sure that a, a rival, but also, uh, you know, a, a competitor. Um, you know, survived a, a disaster that could have befell any of them themselves.
2: Now, that's a story I did not know. Thank you for sharing that. That Wow, that's fantastic. Well, Everybody it, would have just come together and link arms and say, hey, we want to help you. Let's do it.
1: So my question what, for the both of yeah. you is, do you think they're going to come together when climate change continues to affect the crop? Are they going to expand the Champagne region or are they going to keep it close knit like and just keep it exclusive?
0: Well, that's a very good question. I, I, I think they will keep it exclusive. And, and I think um, you know the champagne producers for decades have been looking over their shoulder at you know, changing climactic you know, conditions in Epernay and Rance. And that's why so many of them from Paul Roger to Tattinger have sparkling wineries in, in California, in South Africa, and in Australia. So they've already expanded their brand beyond champagne. So they're clearly well geared up to expand businesses, whether that's in England, like Tattinger and Pomery are doing, or, or anywhere else. But I think the brand name Champagne will always be a, a geographic appellation and will only come from Champagne. But how fun would it be to, to think that there would be an, an, an English sparkling wine that could be labeled Champagne? But I, I, I think it's unlikely, sadly. <laughs>
2: we shall see we shall yeah.
0: see but but they, actually last year in in Paul Roger they discovered about five or six unopened bottles of the 1900 vintage so there was a a wall that they they that either collapsed and behind it were you know six uh, intact bottles of of Paul Roger so last year they invited some you know top international wine um, experts to Epernay, to the Avenue de Champagne, or, or actually, um, Paul Roger's headquarters are on, um, uh, Rue Winston Churchill. So, um, and they opened the, uh, the, the, the bottles of champagne. I think Damien, the winemaker, and Lauren Darkour were there, and they said that there was really some, you know, there was still some incredible, you know, and, uh, sort of, uh, uh, Sense from 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 the bottle that they 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 all enjoyed a tiniest little sip afterwards. So it was a, a mega occasion for Paul Roger to discover that nineteen hundred lost vintage.
2: I bet it was, and also they probably couldn't say that they didn't enjoy it. So no matter what it tasted like, I think they had to say that it was pleasurable.
0: <laughs> I, I think you're right, and I think they. <laughs> one of the most you know there were two incredible american uh writers that we interviewed in the film don and pete cladstrup an amazing you know couple so knowledgeable um they've written two extraordinary books one on uh, wine and war and another on champagne and they've got a forthcoming book uh, coming out i think uh, early next year on charles heitzik and how charles heitzik brought champagne to the u.s champagne charlie as he was known. And what what they said is that when they asked, you know, when they were researching their champagne uh, book, they asked every champagne producer, what was the most extraordinary bottle of champagne that you ever had? And the consistent message for those who were lucky enough to have it was the, what they call the wine of tears, 1914, when the Germans were you know, bombarding Rance, Rance was on the front line, 90% of the cathedral was destroyed, thousands of deaths. In September that year, you know, the harvest workers went out in amongst the shells and harvested the 1914 vintage. And for the, it was the, one of the smallest vintages on record for obvious reasons. But for those who, who, who have sampled that, they said it was the most extraordinary vintage because it was harvested with such love, you know, that, that you know, these people were prepared to risk their lives to ensure that champagne had a vintage that year um, at the outbreak of World War One.
2: All right, maybe one day, we'll, we'll cross our fingers, we'll be able to taste, a, maybe not that vintage, but I'll cross my fingers for that vintage, but something else that is that um, people have that much emotion and um, discussion and feelings around. That would be kind of cool to taste something like that. Definitely. And <laughs> we have talked about flavors. We've talked about the region of champagne, marketing, celebrities, events there's so much in this movie that people can get from it, from learning of houses and how champagne is marketed, what the flavors are, how they are growing it, making it, producing it. What is one or two, if you can't narrow it down, what is something that you want people to walk away from this movie, um, knowing, thinking, feeling?
0: Well, I, I think, especially in COVID times, it's we just wanted to, uh, you know, create a bit of escapism. You know that you know we were concerned that people would think, why are they making a, a documentary about uh, a drink that is so associated with celebration when there is nothing to celebrate in twenty twenty one or you know or even twenty twenty. So it was really just, and an, an, we wanted, you know, people to our audiences to enjoy a fun love letter to the joys and pleasures of Champagne, to forget their everyday woes and just to immerse themselves, transport transport the audience to, you know, this wonderful world of Epernay and Rance. And really that's all we, we wanted to achieve. And, you know, we're at the good times and travel, you know, opening up what we'd, you know, love to have happen is to encourage those who see it to book the next plane to Paris, you know, check out the great, you know, sites of Paris, get on the get on the TGV, you know, less than a 30 minute journey uh, from Charles de Gaulle Airport. And you're in this remarkable world that is so accessible. You know, as you know, you can, you know, have a 25 euro tour of the cellars of Tattinger or Pommery, and have three amazing glasses of champagne. And, you know, it's so welcoming. It's, 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 you know, it really was a, a world that we really enjoyed immersing ourselves in. And we just hope that in the 90 minutes of the documentary that we do justice to, to the champagne producers who are featured in it. So really, it's also, you know, the aim of the film was, it, is a, it was a voyage of discovery for us to find out that champagne was a red still wine, you know, that, that the sparkling nature of champagne was seen as a fault or a flaw that it wasn't really till the 18th century, till the di- time of Dom Perignon, that it was seen as a fashionable you know, drink. You know, The fact that champagne was so uh, explosive you know, for, uh, until the 18th century, the, sh- the vintages of champagne, 90% of them would blow up in the cellars because there wasn't French glass strong enough in bottles to contain the force of champagne exploding. Um, so the French called it the devil's wine. You know, it wasn't really sort of known as champagne. It was called a vin de diable. You know, so it was a very precarious work, working in the cellars of the champagne region because you had to wear a wire mask, like the man, the man in the iron mask, you know, to protect yourself from exploding uh, bottles. So again, it was the English who came up with the, the concept of reinforced glass. And that was you know, what led to the proliferation and exportation of champagne in the 18th century. So it was an English innovation that really, again, another example of outside influence that allowed the champagne uh, product to export itself more safely on French roads. It wasn't really since, it wasn't really until 1715, when King Louis XV 15 decreed that champagne could be bottled that that decreed that champagne could be uh, transported on the main roads of france at the time that was sort of the key moment in in the in the history of champagne that allowed it to be enjoyed uh, more readily by those outside of the champagne region
2: all right well I got that from it, for sure, and um, I am certain that people will get uh, the history, they'll get the visuals, and that will absolutely make them want to get here as soon as possible. And if they can't do that soon, they can at least go to their local wine shop and buy a bottle of champagne and uh, celebrate having watched the movie.
1: It's 90 degrees here, so yes, I have to do this today. I'm going to get some champagne.
0: Oh, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well... And, you know, what, what we're d- delighted as well that, you know, Gravitas, you know, acquired the rights to the U.S. and they're releasing it, you know, in, in cinemas and on all the major streaming platforms, you know, on Friday. It's on, being released on Friday the 13th, so hopefully it won't be so unlucky for us.
2: No, we're we wishing it good luck. We're sprinkling good vibes on it right now. That's what we're doing. Yeah.
0: And, and, and Tanisha, what, what's your favorite champagne?
2: Oh, you might get me in trouble for saying this. Um, <laughs> I'd say from the major houses, from the big houses, I gotta go with uh Tattinger.
0: Oh wow okay that's interesting yeah yeah Tattinger's great yeah. yeah really good I like their bottles as well like I was talking earlier how they have you know artists you know design their labels Bruno Paiar you know does that as well um, Aksana Popkova, our producer, Bruno Pajor is, is, is her favorite, you know, by, by, uh, by a long shot. Yeah, Remarkable man list. as well. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. So many good ones. I why I'm like, oh, which one could I say? Uh, yeah. But yeah, that one yeah. I usually keep a bottle of because I'm thinking now like, hmm, what do I have a bottle of here? That is one of them. Yes. Yeah. Well, Frank, thank you so much for your time uh, today. I really appreciate it. Was fascinating listening to you recall some of the moments from the movie and the history just the amount of things you have just in your head and then also things that we saw in the movie um it was a p- real pleasure talking to you and I, we wish you the best of luck with the release of this film and yeah thank you
0: well well it's a real pleasure talking to you both as well and then thank you so much for you know making us part of the the podcast and uh um, you know and best of luck with your other contributors for for this um, series as well
2: thank you very much have and, a great afternoon uh, awesome. well
0: as, as as they say in France you know au revoir and santé.
2: right au revoir santé
0: okay okay bye bye bye
1: thanks for joining the swell speak guys that is our episode don't forget to check out your local listings for sparkling the story of champagne which releases on friday so check your theaters and your on-demand schedules and hopefully you can watch while drinking champagne of course We'd love for you to share this episode and let us know what you think of the movie. Tag us in your thoughts. You can always find us at SwirlSweet on all social media or email us at SwirlSweet at gmail.com. Cheers.